Superchargers, headlights, and more. With over 122 million parts, eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Stay on your A-game with all the parts you need at the prices you want. It's easy to bring home huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. See ebaymotors.com. Hey, everybody. Thanks for checking out the podcast. We greatly appreciate your support. But before we get started, I wanted to tell you about a success story. I wanted to tell you about my friend Carl up in New Boston, Michigan. He listens to our pods every week, and he heard me talking about how I might be able to help him out. So he hit me up over at SaveWithConrad.com. He just closed last month, and he left us a five-star review, and he had this to say. Not only did we save over $100,000 on our mortgage by removing several years off of it, he also saved us a few months of payments. In follow-up, Conrad and Steve are super helpful when I had additional questions. You can't go wrong here with Save with Conrad. Definitely worth the call to understand what your savings could be. Take Carl's word for it. He saved more than a hundred grand. What have you got to lose? Be like Carl. Go to SaveWithConrad.com right now and find out how much money you can save for free. You don't need perfect credit. You don't need money out of your pocket. And if we can't help you save some cash, we won't waste your time. But because we're licensed in more than 40 states, we can help more families than ever before. Why not you? Why not now? Go to SaveWithConrad.com and find out how much money you can save for free. NMLS number 65084, Equal Housing Lender. Oh, and did I mention no house payments for two months? Get a quick quote right now. Thank me later and you'll be glad you did. SaveWithConrad.com. Hey, it's Conrad Thompson, and you're listening to 83 Weeks with Eric Bischoff. Eric, what's going on, man? How are you? Uh, it's a beautiful day in the neighborhood here in the rodeo capital of the world. Radio home of For the Heat, the new radio sensation. I'm having a blast, man. We've got in-laws in, and people are having fun. I took some kids fishing yesterday afternoon. Um, had just a blast. Perfect day. Perfect. And you got that goatee like you like it. Got your 83 weeks polo like you like it. You're, you're I like know a- this came in the mail yesterday. I was so excited because I don't get a lot of mail. You know, people don't send me shit. The only thing I get are, you know, when sponsors send me products to sample and things like that. So I get really excited when the UPS truck pulls up and lo and behold, it was an 83 week shirt and it's, it's kind of comfy. I like it. I, uh, yeah, you got it from box I told Ryan over there. I said, Hey man, send all of our guys some polos because everybody had been sort of wearing their own stuff. And then the first episode of my world with Jeff Jarrett, he's just wearing a regular polo. And I'm like, let's get him a, let's get him a polo. So anyway, everybody got one and uh, we're excited about it. I do want to circle back to something you sort of hinted at there for the heat.com. Uh, we've done two episodes now. It's our brand new radio show on KODI in Cody, Wyoming. Uh, the big horn basin, here we come, but you can listen worldwide. You don't just have to listen in Wyoming. You can listen anywhere in the country or the globe for that matter for the heat.com. And it's a live call-in show. And I wondered how long will Eric Bischoff be allowed to take calls before someone curses? It was episode two. It happened. Yeah. And it, 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 it happens. Now I don't know, um, Margaret who is working the board. 
and whose job it is, is to, you know, hit that button because they do have a seven second delay. I think she was like distracted by something else that was going on. So I think it unfortunately made air, but um, we'll be forgiven. We're, we're new at this. <clears throat> so they'll forgive us. But here, check this out though. Every Wednesday night, uh, nine Eastern go to for the It's a live one hour radio show. We're sort of doing a proof of concept there in KODI and Eric Bischoff is the host. So, uh, this past week we talked about a lot of stuff, including Daniel Bryan, that awful a and E biography on the macho man, Randy Savage, uh, just an abomination uh, that everyone involved with should be ashamed of. And then of course we talked about AEW's blood and guts. So if you'd like to hear that show, it's available now at adfreeshows.com. But this Wednesday, a couple days from now, a whole new show, man, for the heat.com, 9 p.m. Eastern. Whole new show. Hey, can we kind of break the rules here a little bit? Let's do Crush it. Crush the format for a second. Sure. Talk about the Brian Pillman AE show. Well, the Brian Pillman see? documentary on Vice, that's Thursday night, Dark Side of the Ring. And that was fantastic, right? I loved it. I loved it. And for people who, you know, may not understand, <coughs> excuse me, why I went off the way I did on the Randy Savage A&E documentary, I just felt like there was just a lot of dirt for the sake of dirt, you know, sensationalism for the sake of sensationalism. And the exact opposite, I think, happened on Vice with the Brian Pillman episode. Sure, there was a lot of negative things that were a part of Brian Pillman's story that were brought front and center in that documentary. But the way it was presented, it, it didn't feel to me like they were trying to bury, you know, Brian Pillman's legacy right. as quite the opposite happened. You know, I think the way Stone Cold Steve Austin talked about, yeah. you know, Brian and Jim Ross and Jim Cornette and you know, even Dave Meltzer, a lot of the people that were involved in that, who were directly involved with, with um, Brian and who had a relationship with Brian, you know, they told the story, but they did it respectfully. They didn't do it just to bury somebody. And at the end of that documentary, I, I felt good. I felt good about Brian Pillman's story. It's sad as it was. And I'm sure, you know, everybody wishes it would have turned out different for Brian, but I had to think in my own mind, if Brian's watching this right now, if Brian, if Brian could have been involved in this process or decision-making process, if Brian Pillman could have edited that, had the final edit on, on that documentary, what would Brian have changed? Right. And I don't think he would have changed anything. I think Brian would be proud of his son, Brian Jr. I, I think Brian, you know, trying to reconcile with his mother is a, is a beautiful story, regardless of how it turns out or whether she deserves it or not. That's judgment. And I don't get into judgment. Just the fact that Brian's trying to reestablish, you know, a relationship, a dysfunctional relationship with his estranged mother. I, I, I don't know, man. I felt, I felt hopeful at the end of it. And that's a direct opposite of the way I felt when I saw the Randy Savage A&E documentary. Well, the, the Randy Savage A&E thing was because it was sort of a different context. You know, the, the biography series thus far had been, you know, puff pieces, celebrations, you know, high fives. Let's, let's talk about the legacy of these guys. And then that one felt like, and then his dad ejected him with steroids. And it's like, what is this? 
Uh, now don't get me wrong. If it was on a dark side of the ring context, and that's the format, I could see where we would veer off into some of that stuff. But it, to your point, they didn't, they didn't do Brian as dirty as, as they did Randy on what you thought was a celebratory series. And, uh, I, I feel like there's a lot of good that's going to come out of the Pillman documentary. For one, I think Linda Pillman is the real MVP of the whole family. Uh, what a sweet lady. I think everybody needs an aunt Linda, but number two, and, and this is a big takeaway for me. You want to pull for Brian Pillman jr. Now he is a baby face that I want to see do really, really well in life, not just in wrestling, but in life. Right? Absolutely. I mean, I, I met Brian Pillman jr. About gosh, I've kind of lost track of time in the last four or five years, but I, I would say four years ago is when I first met Brian Pillman Jr. And he came up and he introduced himself to me. He was just as polite and nice as he could be. And I remember thinking to myself, I hate to say this, you know, but I, I, I was, I was afraid for Brian Pillman Jr. I get that man. He's, I know what he's trying to do. I know why he's trying to do it. I admire him for trying to do it, but unless you've got a good, really solid foundation underneath you, and I'm talking about everybody who yeah. gets into any form of the entertainment business. This is not exclusive to professional wrestling. The entertainment business, once you commit to it and commit to doing it for a career and not just a hobby, is a horrible, not a horrible, it can be wonderful, but it is an amazingly challenging journey. And you have to be mentally and emotionally prepared and, and have a good foundation and, you know, what little I knew, and I knew a little bit about, you know, Brian Pillman Jr.'s life growing up, and it was dysfunctional. And to come out of a dysfunctional family, having lost your father at such a young age, under those circumstances in particular, and then trying to follow in his footsteps, which is hard for anybody under the best of circumstances, it's incredibly hard in the professional wrestling industry to follow in your father's footsteps, particularly when your father casts such a large shadow as Brian Pillman senior did. So I, I was afraid for him and I almost wanted, in effect, I think I did. I gave him my phone number said, man, if you ever need anything, if you just want to talk, if you got a question, want a perspective, don't ever hesitate to call me. And I never heard from him. And I, I kind of, you know, went about my business and hadn't didn't see Brian again for a long time, junior. And, um, now to see this and to see how, how far he's come. I mean, as a performer in the ring, he's really come a long way. And I think he's got a ton of potential, but beyond that, I am really hoping that he, he continues his journey. He succeeds in this journey. He rises to the level that I think he's capable of rising to as a performer and a talent and come out of it healthy, because that would be the best tribute to his father's legacy that Brian Pillman Jr. could make is to however far he can go in the industry as a professional, but stay healthy and not make the same mistakes his father made. As a father, I can tell you, I think about every day. I hope I've taught my son and my daughter things that will allow them to become a better person than me by not making the same mistakes I've made in my life. That's I'm sure I don't know, you know, I knew Brian Pillman pretty well, but I didn't, I didn't know him on a real deep personal level, but I'm God, I bet everything I have that I'm right about that. I bet you Brian senior 
would be very proud if Brian Pillman Jr. succeeds and comes out of this industry healthy and happy. This episode is sponsored by Blue Chew. Say it with us. Blue Chew! And Blue Chew is really making waves and bringing more confidence to the bedroom by offering chewable tablets that can help men get stronger and longer-lasting erections. Blue Chew is a unique online service that delivers the same active ingredients as Viagra and Cialis, but in a chewable form at a fraction of the cost. Blue Chew's tablets help men achieve harder, stronger erections to combat all forms of erectile dysfunction. Now, Blue Chew is an online prescription service, so no visits to the doctor's office, no awkward conversations, and get this, no waiting in line at the pharmacy. And it ships right to your door in a very discreet package. And the process is really simple. Just sign up at bluechew.com, consult with one of their licensed medical providers, and once you're approved, you'll receive your prescription within days. The best part? It's all done online. Blue Chew's licensed medical providers will work with you to find the right ingredient and the right strength for your prescription. You don't like swallowing pills? I don't either. No problem here. Blue Chew's Sildenafil and Tadalafil tablets are chewable. Blue Chew's tablets are made in the USA and they prepare and ship direct, so it's cheaper than a pharmacy. So if you could benefit from some extra confidence when it's time to perform, visit bluechew.com for more details and important safety information. And here's a special deal for our listeners. Try Blue Chew free. Free. That's right, free. (laughs) And you use our promo code 83weeks at checkout. Just pay $5 shipping. That's bluechew.com, promo code 83weeks to receive your first month free. And we thank Blue Chew for sponsoring this podcast. Man, it's so cool to hear you talk about Brian Pillman Jr. And uh, you can keep up with his progress these days with AEW. He's relocated to Jacksonville, and I think he lives uh, right down the road from uh, his uh, his aunt. So he's got that support system there in Jackson. He's finally getting to live his wrestling dream, and I'm happy for the dude. I hope you guys all check out Dark Side of the Ring. I think this week is going to be something that uh, you've never seen before, Eric. Dark Side this Thursday is Nick Gage the king of the death match. And this is a little different because he's still actively wrestling. Uh, so check it out and don't forget to check out dark side of the podcast, uh, where I catch up with the creators of that series, Evan and Jason, the morning after it airs. And that's over on the, my world with Jeff Jarrett podcast feed, but we're not here to talk about Jeff Jarrett or vice. We're here to talk about TNA today. We're going to be talking about sacrifice 2011. It's hard to believe this has been uh, 10 years ago. Uh, May 15th, 2011 in the impact zone is where this one went down. We just covered lockdown, uh, but let's do a quick recap. That show was in Cincinnati, Ohio in front of 4,000 fans, every single match in a steel cage. Uh, the main results were fortune defeating immortal in the lethal lockdown match sting retaining his TNA title over Mr. Anderson and RVD and Jeff Jarrett and Kurt angle in the ultra male rules match, two out of three falls. But now we're back at the impact zone. You've been pretty vocal about the impact zone over the years. Um, when was your opinion like cemented that this is bad for business overall? Probably in 1994. 
Oh, so you knew way back when this is just not good. I just, because I did it. Right. I, I, I did it. I, I experienced it. I knew, I knew the advantages of producing your show on a soundstage. And there are advantages. There can be economic advantages, financial advantages, because the economies of scale, when you're producing a show on a location, work definitely work in your favor. Um, from a production value perspective, shooting in a soundstage can, if one chooses to take advantage of it, increase the production values in many respects, or in some respects would be more accurate, but there is a downside to it. It doesn't feel real. It feels like a game show. Uh, it just doesn't feel real. The energy from the crowd, which we've all learned, by the way, because of COVID, everybody now really understands you don't have to have been someone who's actually produced professional wrestling in a television studio to understand how important a genuine live crowd is and how much it adds to the product. We've all seen it now for over a year. We, we all are desperate to see a live crowd in any sporting event. Shit. I'll watch stuff on TV that I've never watched before just because they have a live crowd because I miss it. But when you're shooting in a soundstage, it is the only thing it's, it's sterile. It's not real. Even though you're not using cue cards and you don't have somebody out there encouraging the audience to scream and applaud and boo, it feels like you do. It just doesn't feel the same. Um, and I, I learned it from having to do it. You know, I chose to shoot, you know, one of our syndicated shows at the Disney MGM studios for a variety of reasons, some of it economic or financial, you know, some of it because we needed to increase our production values. And I couldn't even draw a real crowd. I, we WCW couldn't even draw a real crowd back in 93 and 94 to produce a show. So we were forced to go into the soundstage really um, as a, better choice, not a great choice, but a better choice than what we were doing. So, you know, coming into the impact zone, I understood it for all the same reasons that I had to do it. I understood it. And I wasn't like vocal and trying to get everybody to change their mind about it. I did on a regular basis, talk a lot about the difference between a live crowd in a studio audience crowd. And it fell on deaf ears, but hell go back and look at the show we did last week in Cincinnati. No one can watch that show and tell me I'm wrong. Right. Not see the difference between a real crowd that pays real money and is there because of what they see on television versus someone who happens to be walking by and goes, Hey, there's a wrestling show being produced there. Let's go watch that. Two different things, man. Anyway, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm sorry. I, I'm going to kick the soapbox. Here, get it out of the way. Oh, no, 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 no. I need you to get fired up because the honky tonk man. I know what you're thinking. I could see it on your face. This is a TNA topic. Why are we talking about him? Well, the honky tonk man starts talking about how Dixie isn't running the company anymore. Her mother Janice is now, of course, you know, to take everything the honky tonk man says with a grain of salt, I get that. However, Janice and the, the Carter family are more and more involved. What do you make of a uh, honky tonk man's assertion here that Dixie's no longer in charge. Janice is here. We go. 
God dang it, I thought I was done with this soapbox. First of all, how would Honky Tonk Man know anything about what's going on in TNA? Telephone, telegram, telewrestler. Bullshit. He doesn't know anything. He's repeating something someone else told him. Yeah. Now that that person or persons who had whatever discussion they obviously had at the time with Honky Tonk Man and shared that perspective, maybe could have been kind of close to the epicenter and knew what they were talking about. Or maybe that person was just repeating something that that person heard. That's, you know, that's the toxic cesspool of peripheral wrestling Reddit dialogue and media and chat and dirt sheets. And and nobody's really reporting on information that they have firsthand knowledge of and has the balls and the hair on them to actually source those types of comments. Very few people do. Very few people do. And, and because it's always, I know a guy that knows a guy that knows a guy that heard, you know, this is going on in WWE or AEW, or in this case, TNA back in 2011, they all kind of, to me, people like honky tonk man, and not, I'm not just picking on honky tonk man. Um, I'm not picking on them all, but people that have the tendency to, espouse all this so-called information and perspective that is based on nothing but second and third and fourth and fifth hand information all fit into one little kind of um, insect group. You know, they're, they're all parasites to one degree or another. So, sorry. I like when you get in your soapbox. Um, Do you remember there being a real cash crunch here in 2011? I guess in some sense, TNA was always in the cash crunch, but it did, did it start to feel like more than normal? It was a, a more daily conversation. I think I, you know, I wasn't involved directly involved in any conversations with regard to finance. That was like Dean Broadhead, you know, um, was, was primarily, he was the controller comptroller, whatever you want to call him, uh, at, at TNA. Obviously, Dixie was very much involved in it, but those kind of those TNA finance conversations were a closely held conversation. Again, Dean Broadhead, uh, Dixie Carter, Janice Carter, not so much Bob. Dixie's father, Bob, to my knowledge, I never heard the name usually when it came to, you know, anything relative to funding or finance between TNA and Panda Energy, which was the company that actually was funding. Um, um, TNA that was owned by Bob and Janice Carter. Bob's name very seldom came up. Janice's name I did hear often. Um, and to me, you know, looking back on it, it seemed like financial conversations or uh, whether it was tightening the belt or making a commitment to take the show on the road live, you know, anything that required, you know, a discussion about finance that was a serious discussion, those seemed to come up about once every two years. Once a year, all of a sudden it was a big deal. And then you wouldn't hear about it again for a while. So I, you know, I don't know. And it's because I was never a part of them. All I can tell you was, do I remember this particular, you know, period? Was there, you know, a discussion about finance and cash crunches and shit? Maybe it wouldn't have occurred. 
I, I wasn't a part of them, but it did seem like, you know, once or twice a year, these things would happen. So it's possible. I don't know. Uh, the former Daphne is in the middle of a lawsuit with TNA regarding medical bills from her time in the company. Do you remember anything about this? This has become one of those whisper things that you hear a lot about, but nobody really wants to talk about. And I think somehow Terry Taylor was involved. I've got a whole bunch of emails somewhere about this, but I've never talked to you about it. What do you remember hearing about the rumor and innuendo about Daphne's situation with TNA? I mean, I know there was an issue. I, I, I heard there was a legal issue, but honest to God, Conrad, <coughs> excuse me. Oh, cough button. Hold on. Oh, that was close. Wasn't it? Um, I made up my mind a long time ago to not pay attention to rumors, whether they were, you know, coming from people that I thought were credible or not. I just, I stay away from them. You know, if, if it doesn't have anything to do with me, if I'm not directly involved, if I'm not responsible directly or indirectly for something that happened under my watch, I don't fucking want to know about it. Right. It's none of my business. So when I, when I would hear things like that, I would intentionally tune them out. I would find a way to distract myself with something else to get my attention. Cause I don't want, I don't even want to hear that stuff. So yeah, there was something going on what it was. I don't know whether it was true, whether there was basis. In fact, I don't know. I know there was something going on, but I don't know what it is. I don't know what you probably know more about it than I do. Hey Conrad, you and I love talking about Steven Singer, man. He's a buddy. But you know what? The competition really, I mean, really hates him. Stephen makes the experience of buying a diamond better and better, and he makes it fun. Stephen is the very first to offer each and every guest the perfect price. That's right. Have you ever wondered if you're really getting the best price? Are you like me and a little bit uncomfortable negotiating? Well, head to Stephen Singer Jewelers, and you are guaranteed to get the perfect price. You'll never pay more than the person next to you. Here's a little insider tip, fans. Most jewelers mark their merchandise way up just to mark it down to make you feel like you're getting a good deal. The person next to you may be paying less. What the hell? Do you want an important purchase like diamond jewelry to be based on your negotiating skills? Not the case at Steven Singer. Because at Steven Singer Jewelers, you are guaranteed to get the perfect price all day, every day, 365 days a year. That's why Conrad and I trust Steven Singer. He makes the experience of buying a diamond so easy. Check out Steven Singer Jewelers at the other corner of 8th and Walnut in Philly or online at IHateStevenSinger.com. Steven Singer Jewelers. One place, one price. That's I hate Steven Singer.com. Let's talk about Jay Lethal. It's written in the observer. Jay Lethal was released from his contract after the pay-per-view. This surprised a lot of people in the company because when he was given the ball, he did well. And at one point, Eric Bischoff had sung his praises as being a future star. He was one of those guys that the promotion would get behind. Like he had wins over both Ric Flair and Kurt angle and then forget about it does seem odd to put lethal over on the way the company did. And then boom, he's released. Do you remember what happened here with Jay lethal? I don't. 
And I don't get it. You know, I'm because everybody loved Jay. Yes. I mean, the people that worked with Jay loved Jay. The audience loved Jay. The people, I'll speak for myself. I'll speak for Hulk Hogan. Uh, we love Jay. And a lot, of, and I don't know anybody that didn't think highly of him at first as a person and secondly as a professional because he was great at both. I, and I was really stunned when they let him go. And I don't know why. I wasn't involved in the decision. I'm not like kind of fading the heat here because I don't want to talk about it. I just wasn't involved in it and therefore confused by it. Once the decision was made, there was nothing out. I wasn't going to put the bullet back in the gun, so to speak. Uh, they pulled the trigger. He was let go. There's nothing really I could do about it other than to shake my head and go, what the fuck? I don't understand it. And I further don't understand why Jay hasn't shown up on a bigger platform. You know, I mean, I think he's enjoying his time and his contract value with Ring of Honor. I mean, he's he's and, probably and, and enjoy- you know what? God bless him for that because yeah. sometimes I make the mistake too of going, "Well, he's, he's so good, he should be in WWE or he should be in AEW." And sometimes you're just happy doing what you're doing. And God bless you for that, Jay Lethal. If that's the case, man, you you're you're actually more successful than ninety percent of the people I know in the wrestling business because you're doing what makes you happy and you're not putting money first. Good for you. Yeah, the thing worth money me- will come. Yeah, and and the thing worth mentioning too is um, that old cliche. Sometimes is true. What what do they say? It's uh, happiness isn't getting what you want; it's wanting what you get. And so he got it right. So he's, as far as I know, uh, enjoying his his time in wrestling and probably making a great living and enjoys who he works with and what he's doing. And man, when you find sort of your your lot in life like that, kudos to you, man. So. Absolutely. Glad he's doing well. Let's talk about one of your favorite performers. There's a TV segment here where Karen Jarrett becomes queen of the mountain with Jeff Jarrett crowning her in a spoof of the Royal wedding. And, um, then horse shit falls from the ceiling all over Karen from Kurt angle and Kurt then announces he had a mistress who would be able to lay hands on Karen since he wouldn't. Yeah. Uh, queen of the mountain and there's horse shit from the ceiling. And, uh, my mistress is going to beat you up. What'd you think of this creative? This is going to surprise a lot of people a lot, but I had nothing to do with that creative. That's Vince Russo. You're mean, you mean to say that Vince Russo booked shit flying in from the ceiling. That's not the best part. Okay. The best part is I liked it. Oh, wow. Good I'm for you. putting over a Vince Russo inspired, created, whatever. I wasn't involved in, so I don't know how much, you know, it could have been a combination of Jeff and Kurt and Vince. I, I don't know. Cause I literally was not a part of it. So I don't know the dynamics and who contributed the most and who came up with what ideas. I just know that Vince Russo was really writing that. In fact, this whole show that we're going to talk about, I wasn't really involved in on a creative basis because Hulk wasn't involved. I wasn't involved. And I tended only to kind of lay hands at this point, only lay hands on things that I was directly or Hulk was directly involved with. So I like, you know, I, I think the booking on this show was pretty cool. I think the, the stunt with Karen earlier, uh, and, and the horseshit, I get it. I, it was what it was. Karen sold it like a million bucks because she's a pro and she comes by it naturally. So I, I dug it. Well, all right. Uh, 
Mark the day and times, boys and girls. Hell is frozen over. Eric Bischoff liked a Vince Russo idea. Uh, it's revealed that the mystery network guy who's been tormenting you and Hulk Hogan is Mick Foley. And he cuts a promo that they're dropping TNA and starting up a new promotion called impact wrestling, where the focus will be on wrestling inside the ring. And the first new star he's bringing in is China. And China is going to team with Kurt against Jeff and Karen Jarrett at the sacrifice show. Lot to unpack here. Uh, Mick Foley as the payoff here is good as he can talk. One of the best promos ever. Was there ever any discussion preliminary or otherwise about putting Hulk in a match with Foley? No, no. Hulk could barely, um, when Hulk was this, this was the beginning of a really, um, dark period physically. I mean, Hulk could have been a lot of, you know, negative things and been involved with a lot of negative. There was a lot going on in Hulk's life with the divorce and, you know, other issues that have nothing to do with wrestling, but he was in a ton of pain. This is when the back was really, really starting. It was before the 17 surgeries. I think he had had a couple by then, by 2011, but physically, like when I would show up at the sun, oftentimes I would fly into Tampa uh, the night before stay at a hotel. Hulk could swing by and pick me up or I'd meet him at his house. And then we would drive together to Orlando for the show. And we would, pull up to the sound stage at Disney and it took Hulk 10 minutes just to get out of the car. So there, there was no thought of matches at this time. And by the way, the, the move, let's talk about McFoley though, is the, the network representative that was whose idea was that you ask? No, you didn't, but I'll tell you anyway, that was my idea. You're bad. Whether, I wasn't going to ask, like I wasn't going to ask because you legitimately said, I didn't have anything to do with creative in this era. No, I didn't no, 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 no. But, but that move, that was, that move wasn't for this show. Okay. That, that move was a, that was a bigger move that would have impacted all of TV. That was, that was a sub, that was a subject that we had been talking about for weeks or months. How do we, you know, create an authority figure that doesn't feel like every other authority figure, because even by 2011, the authority figure thing was way overdone. And I didn't want to be involved with it. It was tired, especially for me as in my character. Nobody wanted to see that anymore. So we thought about who could that be? And Scott Fishman, who was at Spike TV at the time, the television guy, not the journalist, um, was really big on Mick. And and I, I was too, obviously, because Mick could, that's a role that's perfect for Mick. And uh, so, yeah, I had, I think I had to convince Mick to do it. I don't think Mick was really excited about it when I first pitched it to him, but eventually got warmed up to the idea, but yeah, I dug it. Number two, um, the transition from TNA to impact. It's crazy. It's been 10 years in hindsight. Was it the right call? Yes. TNA tits and ass wrestling oh. girls in cages. That was the ideation. That means that's where the idea started. The ideation of TNA was juvenile, prepubescent, let's jerk off to a Sears lingerie catalog mentality on the part of Vince Russo. In my humble opinion, it was stupid to start out with. It was even dumber 
to hold on to it when you're trying to become a national promotion on a high profile cable outlet in prime time, when you're trying to appeal to advertisers, it was as stupid as any idea that I've seen perpetuated for an extended period of time. It was time to drop the TNA, but you know, people within TNA didn't want to, they felt like, Oh my gosh, we've invested so much in this brand. Yes. And it was a stupid brand to invest in. It was a dumb idea from the get go. And you were even dumber to keep throwing tons of money at it because you don't understand, didn't understand the nature of the television business. It's driven by ad sales and nobody, nobody wants to go to their clients. If you work for an advertising agency and say, Hey, especially, Oh my God. If that, if that client executive was a female, Oh, and let's make it worse. Maybe you're just a guy and you're going to go in and pitch this exec on this really cool thing called TNA. On the surface, couldn't have somebody just thought about that for like 45 seconds, put themselves in a, in, a, in somebody else's shoes and just try to imagine how hard it is to pitch that. Especially because at that time before for TNA in particular, wrestling was a tough sale. Let's right. make it tougher. Oh my God. Yes, it was time. And fortunately, fortunately, the people who were paying for the show, that being Viacom through their cable outlet spike said enough, pump the fucking brakes. We're paying the freight, not only for this show, but for a large part of the high profile talent within the show as a separate budget item. Outside of the television licensing agreement, Spike was funding a lot of the big name contracts that Dixie brought in from WWE before I got there, including Mick Foley and, and Booker T and Sting and Kevin Nash and Scott Hall and whoever. Those people all came in, not all of them, I should be careful, not all of them, but a good part of the expensive ones, the really expensive were funded by Spike. And finally, Spike pumped the brakes and said, sorry, if we're going to continue with this show and try to sell it, we have to rebrand it. And it was a tough battle. There was a lot of pushback internally, mostly from the people who didn't have anything to do with running the business on a day-to-day business or a day-to-day basis from Texas, that being Panda Energy. Mommy and Daddy, mostly Mommy, didn't want to do it. They want to spend the money. So Spike did. Spike paid for the rebranding. Spike paid for the research. These are things that the company should have been doing for themselves, but they didn't and they wouldn't. So Spike said, all right, if you won't, we will. And they, because I, I was a part of the research. I traveled around the country with, with Viacom executives, with Kevin K, who at that, time, at that time was running the network and, and Scott Fishman and others. And we did the, the, they, Spike, Viacom paid for that research and took that research away and said, okay, here's what we're going to do. And they did it out of their checkbook, which was unheard of. I'd never heard of such a thing. Talk to me about China. Uh, China's introduced China. here. <laughs> I knew something like that would make you laugh. I know, right? <laughs> Every time Trump used to go, China, I go, what the fuck? Why do you do that? It's weird. You know, it's China. Yeah. China. Yeah. So China. 
Hey, Conrad, I know you love saving people money, which is why I know you love our friends over at rockauto.com. Look, there's a lot of reasons to maintain and take care of your own vehicle. And the biggest one is to save you money that you could use for other important things like mortgages or food or college education for your kids. Why would you choose to spend 30, 50, or 100% more for the exact same auto parts at a chain store or a new car, new car dealership? It doesn't make any sense. Chain stores have different price tiers for professional mechanics and do-it-yourselfers. Not at rockauto.com. The prices are always the same for everybody and are reliably low. RockAuto.com offers the lowest prices possible rather than charging prices based on whatever the market will bear like the airlines do. RockAuto.com is for everybody and does not require membership or account login. It's a family business serving auto parts customers online for 20 years. Go to RockAuto.com and shop for auto and body parts from hundreds, hundreds of manufacturers. They have everything from engine control modules to brake parts to tail lamps, motor oil, and even new carpet. Whether it's for your classic or your daily driver, get everything you need in a few easy clicks delivered directly to your door. The rockauto.com catalog is unique and remarkably easy to navigate. You can quickly see all the parts available for your vehicle and choose the brands, the specifications, and the prices you prefer. Amazing selection, reliably low prices, all the parts your car will ever need, Rock Auto. RockAuto.com. Go to RockAuto.com now and see all the parts available for your car or truck. Write 83 weeks in there. How did you hear about us, Box? So they know Conrad and I sent you. Uh, what exactly were the negotiations like? Did you hear about this? I know you weren't involved in it, but China feels like somebody who, you know, a decade prior to this was, gosh, one of the biggest stars in the whole business. And now 10 years later... Well, maybe not as much. Maybe and, not at all. Okay. I'm going to cut you loose here. No, I, I look up. China's not here to defend herself and there's no reason to speak ill of China, but I, I think the logic of bringing her in. And again, this was all Vince Russo. And from, to my knowledge, I mean, I, maybe Kurt had something to do with it. Maybe Jeff had something to do with it. I don't know. I didn't. I'm just telling you the way I felt kind of standing outside, looking in at the time, um, I thought it was a bad idea. You know, China had been going through a lot of issues, personal issues that were very high profile. And to me, the risk of bringing her in, given all of the things that everybody was aware of on TMZ and in the media and everything else, the risk to the business the advertising business, the, the the damage it could potentially do to the brand, um, was just a bad choice. And she was she'd been out of the game for ten years, and we'll talk about it when we you know cover the actual match. But she wasn't ready to be in a match. She 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 wasn't on her game, and I, I just felt like the risk completely outweighed the reward, the potential reward. Well, there was a lady who started doing some indie stuff in 08. I think she did some juggalo stuff in 09. And the talk here is that Lindsay Hayward, who is like a six foot eight or six foot nine, 250 pound lady who was originally, uh, in the sights of WWE was supposed to be Kurt's quote unquote mistress and mystery woman here. And, um, 
supposedly she shows up to TV and didn't know she wasn't being used until she saw China there. Did you meet Lindsay, uh, Lindsay Hayward, or do you have any knowledge of this? No. When you, what do you think of the creative of the, you know, we talked about just China's involvement, but the creative that, uh, China was Kurt's mistress feels a little, I don't know, unnecessary. Stupid. Okay. That's a better word. Not believable. Yeah. Not consistent with Kurt's character. Um, no life expectancy after this one angle. I could probably give you five reasons. Well, I think I just did reasons why this is a stupid idea. That's another one of those. Hey, I know let's do this. Well, okay, let's all do it. Boom. Move on to the next dumb idea without giving it any real thought in fairness. Did it it fit Kurt's character? WCW did some dumb shit like this. Every, of course we did. God damn it. I always, I always acknowledge when we do dumb shit (laughs) and here's what makes it even, this is why I get hotter. Didn't mean to take the Lord's name in vain. I'm sorry. Here's, here's what makes me hotter is yes. I did dumb shit. Everybody that follows after that dumb shit moment should write it down and go, well, let's not do that dumb shit again. Learn from it. I did for God's sake. Yes. WCW did dumb shit. I'll fucking wear the shirt. If you have one made for me, I don't care, but what makes me really animated is that the good word animated? What makes me very animated is when people repeat the same dumb shit I did or the same dumb shit other people did. Why? Why would you do that? Inquiring minds want to know. Why would you repeat mistakes that other people before you have made and think that that's a good idea? Well, I'm sure they're, they're looking for any sort of traction they can get. So they think, man, if we could get Mick Foley, that's a big pop. Oh, if we could get China, man, that'll get some eyeballs. So I understand trying to leverage old stars. TNA did that a lot, uh, with, with flair, with Hogan, with Nash, with hall. I mean, on and on and on. Let's talk about somebody else who wants to come back. Chris Harris wants to return to reform his tag team with James storm. And, uh, of course. Storm these days is teaming with Robert Roode as beer money. And it feels like that's a rock solid tag team. But the word is Roode wants to be a single star or the company wants Roode to be a single star, depending on who you believe. And, uh, Chris Harris, and I don't even know, you and I never talked about this, but in the infancy of TNA, Chris Harris and James storm were a tremendous tag team known as America's most wanted. I, I thought they were great. This was a sort of early TNA. They were wrestling the naturals a lot and Christopher Daniels and Elix Skipper who were triple X. They had really great tag team wrestling in the early days of TNA, but Harris sort of tried his own uh, luck and, and WWE and Braden Walker was not long for that world. So he wants to come back. And I think Chris Harris was even a fake sting for you once in WCW. What can you tell us about Chris Harris? Not a thing. Okay. I didn't, you know, and I, I didn't watch him. I didn't watch early TNA. So when he and James Storm were America's most wanted, that all happened 
in a world that I'd never visited. So I had no idea. I don't know anything about it. I don't think I've ever watched one of their matches, so I can't comment on that. Um, I wasn't involved in bringing them back for this short stint in TNA, so I can't tell you anything about that. I can tell you what I thought of his match that I watched this morning. We're going to get there. I really don't. And, and I'm not no disrespect to Chris Harris at all. I just, we never crossed paths professionally or personally, so I can't tell you anything about him. Hey, just wanted to give you a heads up. You're wasting money on your single biggest expense, and you might not even realize it. Just ask Brandon in Texas. Save with Conrad.com. Just hooked him up. He left us a five-star review, and here's what he had to say. This whole refinance process has been super easy. It's been entirely stress-free. I had a good interest rate beforehand and no real need to refinance, but I finally looked into it after hearing Conrad's ads. Turns out they were able to cut five years of payments, saving me about $50,000. Man, Brandon saved 50 grand and he thought he had a great deal. How much can you save? Find out right now for free at savewithconrad.com. You don't need perfect credit or money out of your pocket and we're licensed in more than 40 states so we can help more families than ever before at savewithconrad.com. NMLS number 65084, equal housing lender. Oh, and did I mention no house payments for two months? At savewithconrad.com. Let's talk about the observer because I know you love it. Quote, Eric Bischoff is starting a new business venture called Eric Bischoff family brewing, uh, marketing a Buffalo bill, Cody beer, the spirit of the wild West and Meltzer would write. That's a good cross promotion because watching impact and trying to make sense of it will drive most normal people to drinking, which is kind of fun, but tell us about, uh, Buffalo bill, Cody beer. I just got a text earlier this week saying, Hey, uh, I can't find it in California. What stores in Northern California carry Buffalo bill Cody beer. And I said, well, listen to 83 <laughs> weeks this week and we'll get an answer. All right. So about 2006 or seven, Mrs. B and I are sitting out on the front porch. It's in the summertime. Weather's beautiful. Here in Wyoming, looking up the valley into Yellowstone National Park, out over the smooth, placid waters of the Buffalo Bill Reservoir, geese flying very low and slow, honking as they fly. And I'm sitting there with my beer, and I look over at Mrs. B, who's sipping a nice Merlot, and I said, Mrs. B, Buffalo Bill Cody's a damn big deal. Nobody knows it. But at one time, at the turn of the 20th century, Buffalo Bill Cody was the most famous celebrity on earth. Did you know that, Conrad? No. Did you know that Buffalo Bill Cody, who was born in Iowa, moved to Kansas, eventually made his way to Wyoming, founded the city of Cody, Wyoming, was a scout for the U.S. Calvary, at 14 years old, rode one of the first riders for the pony express. So a fascinating man. It is. And, and created one of the first American live touring businesses where he toured the Buffalo bill wild West show, not only here in the United States, all over Europe. If you go to, if you come to Cody, Wyoming and you go to a hotel, it's called the Irma hotel. 
It was a hotel that Buffalo Bill Cody built and named after his daughter, Irma. And if you go into the restaurant side of that hotel, there is a gigantic cherry wood, cherry wood bar that would eat the bar in my house. It's huge, <laughs> huge. That giant cherry wood bar was a gift from the queen of England in recognition of the Buffalo Bill Wild West tour that came through London. And oh, by the way, it toured Paris as well. Fascinating story. So anyway, let's get to the beer. So we're sitting on the porch. I'm sipping. Now I'm into my third beer by now. I'm sipping my beer. Now I'm guzzling my beer. And I'm thinking, you know, every year, about a million and a half people drive through the city of Cody, Wyoming, which is a town of 10,000 people. They're all on their way to Yellowstone National Park. And if you come to Cody, Wyoming in the summertime, it is your typical tourist kind of place. Hats, jackets, T-shirts, rubber tomahawks, cowboy hats, you name it. There's some Buffalo Bill cowboy shit for sale. And people buy it. So I said to Mrs. B, Mrs. B, would you like another glass of wine? Here, let me pour that for you. Okay. Here's my idea, Mrs. B. Why don't we come up with a Buffalo Bill Cody beer? And here's how smart I am. I thought to myself, hey, nobody has, because I did the research, nobody has a trademark on anything related to Buffalo Bill Cody. So I called my attorney at the time, Scott Hervey, Jason Hervey's older brother, who is really a great attorney and a trademark copyright attorney, intellectual property attorney, much like our gimmick attorney, Mr. Michael Dawkins. But I didn't know Michael at the time, and I'm not sure he was practicing law. So I called up Scott Hervey, and I said, Scott, I want to get this trademark. And I found this really cool poster of Buffalo Bill Cody that was produced in 1907, I think, maybe 1905. And it was fantastic. And it was the poster that was used for Buffalo Bill Wild West Tour in Paris. And it was public domain. So I said, Scott Hervey, how do I make this mine? What can I do to trademark this image? And he said, well, you have to modify it a little bit. So there's a little bit of an original art element to it. But since it's in the public domain, that shouldn't be too big of a problem. So off we went. And I said, Mr. Hervey, I want to trademark Buffalo Bill Cody. What's that going to cost me for beer? He said, oh, Eric, we should be able to get that done for about 10 grand. I said, 10 grand? That's sushi bar money. Absolutely. I'm going to own the only Buffalo Bill Cody trademark in the industry, in the world, I'm going to own it and I'm going to use it for beer. That way, all of these million people that drive through Cody, Wyoming with their kids in the back on their way to Yellowstone National Park because they want to see Yogi the Bear. <laughs> I'm going to sell each and every one of those people a hat, a T-shirt, a 12-pack of Buffalo Bill Cody beer, and a bumper sticker. So I started doing the math and I'm thinking if 3% of the people that come through Cody, Wyoming buy either or all of the said, you know, merchandise, hell, that's going to be a fun little hobby. So I launched Buffalo Bill Cody beer and I found a brewer up in Billings, Montana that would private label it. I finally went through the trademark process, which was a bloody battle that actually made, I think, one of the front, the front page section of the Wall Street Journal. That's right. My trademark battle actually ended up making headlines in the Wall Street Journal at the time. So that $10,000 estimate to get that trademark, guess what it ended up being? By the time I was all said and done, and I won. hundred? Almost $250,000 out of my <sighs> pocket. Because here's what happens. Here's, well, here's what happened to me. 
Now, fortunately, working with Mr. Dawkins and having had this experience, I'm far better for it. But um, here's what happened. And Scott, you know, Scott Herbert, my attorney at the time, he was doing, he, he didn't know. And it, this is what happens. You know, you apply for a trademark and there's a lot of conversation about trademarks in wrestling. So is, you know, semi-adjacent as this conversation seems to be, it actually applies to, to our world in wrestling. Because you come up with a great idea and you search it, you do your, you know, USPTO.gov, you know, do your search. It's easy to do. Anybody with a laptop or mobile phone can do it. And you put in the term that you're thinking about trademarking and you go, oh, nobody has it. Cool. Then you find an attorney and you go through that process. Well, as that process evolves and, and progresses, you get to a point where you have to publish your intent to trademark whatever it is you're trademarking, which gives people around the country who may have a reason to oppose it an opportunity to oppose it. Right. So in my case, Buffalo Bill Cody beer, nobody had it completely clean. Once we went to publish, all kinds of people came out of the woodwork, including Buffalo Trace whiskey. Now, one would say, wait a minute, beer doesn't have anything to do with whiskey. And they are, in fact, two separate categories from a trademarking point of view. But nonetheless, they put up a bitch. They've got three floors worth of attorneys. I had one that was charging me $525 an hour on 15-minute increments. If I sent him an email, it would cost me a 15-minute increment increment of $525 an hour. So this shit gets real fucking expensive real fast. Yeah, it does. Hence the $250,000 I burned in this process. But, you know, on the service, okay, nobody has it. Great. You should be able to file that. No trouble. And then all of a sudden... Well, there's a little bit of an issue with that. How much is that going to cost? Well, it's about another five or 10 grand. Okay. I'm in 10, another five, another 10. I'll double down. Okay. Now I'm in 20 or 30 and three months later. Oh man, we didn't see this coming, but yeah, we got an issue here. Let's try to negotiate it away at $525 an hour and 15 minute increments. Fuck. Now you're up to hundred grand or 75 grand. And now Buffalo Trace whiskey comes from out of the woodwork. And my attorney says, no, Eric, don't worry about it. We can beat that. Easy for you to say at $525 an hour in 15-minute increments. I'm writing the checks. But now I'm into it for 100 grand or so. What do I do? I have no choice. I either walk away from the 100 grand I've already spent thinking that this should be no big deal. I either walk away from that, tuck my tail between my legs and, and, and quit, or I keep fighting and I kept fighting and fighting and fighting. And I eventually won in one respect, <laughs> in another respect, I got my ass kicked and we launched the beer and the beer did really well. People here in Cody loved the beer. It was like the number one selling independent beer here in Cody. And Oh, by the way, in um, markets all around, uh, we were distributed throughout the, we were distributed in Montana, Wyoming at one point in Nevada Arizona, Colorado. Uh, we had great distribution. People love the product, but the truth of the matter is, and this is one of those things that you learn, you know, you try, you try, you, 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 you try something new you've never done before. And, you know, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't, but when it doesn't, you learn something. And what I learned is number one, the margins in beer are so slim. I mean, you're, it's they're, the, the profit margins are ridiculously slim. The distribution for beer is 
should almost be illegal. It's, it's so hard to get distribution unless you're a big box brewer, a Coors, a Miller, or whomever, um, you're not going to get distribution, even regardless of how great your product is. And the only way you're going to get distribution is if you've got 10 or 12 beers under your label, because it's just as much work for a distributor to distribute, keep track of, manage one label, or they call it a SKU, actually, in the business, in the business, but you know, manage one SKU uh, as it is to manage 15. So they would rather manage 15 because they're making more money off of it than put the same amount of time and effort into managing one. So long story short, we did it for a couple of years. It was kind of a vanity project. You know, I never expected to make a lot of money off of it. I was hoping just to break even, to be honest. Um, but eventually it just got to be to the point where the, the amount of effort and work and money that it took just to try to break even just got to be a grind. And the more I realized how much of an uphill battle it was, the more I was determined to kind of find an elegant way out. Now, currently, I'm, I've actually had discussions in the last 12 months with two separate individuals that are interested in buying the brand um, and buying the trademark. Whether or not I do it, I don't know. Um, they're not real serious conversations at this point, but you know, they keep, they keep coming back and wanting more information. So who knows? Hey, Conrad, you know, this weekend's UFC 262 is sure to be a can't miss event. Every punch, kick and knockout means so much more with the DraftKings lineup on the line. DraftKings, the official daily fantasy partner of UFC, is giving you a shot at huge cash prizes. For this weekend's fight, DraftKings is offering all customers a shot at millions of dollars in total prices. Now, if you haven't tried it yet, fantasy MMA is really easy to play. Just pick six fighters, stay under the salary cap, and pile up points for advances, takedowns, and so much more. There's no better way to put your MMA knowledge to the test than to compete for a shot at millions of dollars in total prizes. Plus, don't forget about basketball and hockey, where DraftKings has even more money up for grabs throughout the week. DraftKings is safe, secure, and reliable, so you can deposit and withdraw your funds at your convenience. Download the DraftKings app right now and use promo code 83weeks for your shot at millions of dollars in total prizes throughout the entire week. That's promo code 83weeks to get a shot at millions of dollars in total prices only at DraftKings. Eligibility restrictions apply. See DraftKings.com for details. Well, so there you go. Buffalo Bill Cody. Catch up. Here. How much time did we just burned a half an hour talking about shit that had nothing to do with this show? Really? Well, it's we're awesome. back on track now. We're talking about uh, one of the best things I've ever read in the Observer. <laughs> this is about the April twenty seventh Impact show. Quote: Karen and Jeff were in the ring with a bunch of women lined up. Miss Testmacher, uh, boy, butchered that. Uh, Tara, Madison Rain, Velvet Sky, the seamstress, the lady in catering, uh, Sarita and Rosita, and there was a fifteen minute. Karen angle promo session. I would call it fake boobs and fake crowd noise because that was the overriding theme. Karen only used the word slut three times and ripped on tests for having fake fun bags. All I can say is if by some stretch of the imagination, you were the girl in high school who scarred Vince Russo, I hate you. I normally wouldn't advocate it. And I mean it in 1978. 
who would have figured this guy would be writing a weekly television show that I'm forced to watch sometimes against my will that would drive a normal person to alcoholism, their kids, not speaking to them. And if their wives are watching weeks of being celibate, but I sure wish she would have just slept with him to get that's, a, that's the best thing that Dave Meltzer ever wrote. I have never heard anything that actually made me laugh in a fun way that Dave Meltzer wrote, but that was right on the money. I liked it. He's that. not done. He goes, but I sure wish she would have just slept with him to get it over with. So he wouldn't have the power to have women with fake boobs insult other women's boobs for 15 minutes while the crowd sits on their hands. The TV audience at home, thanks God, there's an NBA playoff game on, and I'm listening to this minor league background whirring of fake creed noise, fake crowd noise. This segment with all these ladies here and Karen calling everybody sluts and making fun of fun bags, this is Attitude Era 15 years too late, is it not? So all Vince Russo. It's a glimpse into the underdeveloped, immature, sexually repressed mind of one Vince Russo. You know, when you're really, when you're twisted deep down inside, it manifests in all kinds of different manners, depending on who you are and how you grew up. And, and I cannot say how much I agree with what Dave Meltzer wrote here on this one show, we are making history here today, ladies and gentlemen, on this one show, two, two things have happened already. And we're only about 37 minutes in maybe 35. I'm back really keeping track of time. It does not matter. But twice on this show. Now I have put over Vince Russo and now Dave Meltzer. The world is shifting on its axis. Ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> Let's, uh, let's jump into, uh, Kurt angle. He's going to renew his contract and it's being discussed that he's going to try to get back to the Olympics. Did you ever talk to Kurt about him trying to make one last run in 2011 here? Nope. I just thought I would admire that effort from afar. I was supportive, excited and concerned all at the same time, but didn't feel it was my place to share my opinion. He didn't ask me and I didn't offer it. Before we get to the show, let's talk about TV ratings. We're coming off of lockdown, which had a 1.54 million viewers process that 1.54 million viewers. Now in the buildup, oh, no, 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 here's context. This came my brother. Here's what's even more interesting about that. People were upset with that number. They were. And, and the they build- were upset with 1.5 million viewers in 2011. By 2014, they would have cut off body parts for 1.5 million viewers, but here they were disappointed in that number. The, uh, the build here, um, the build, the sacrifice shows a 1.81 million viewer number for the go home show. 1.81 million to be clear, you know, when, when AEW hits a million, it's high fives all around as well. It should be, but 10 years ago, to your point, 1.81, still not all that great. You know, we're still thinking, man, we're, we're not where we need to be. Let's get into the show. Wrestling observer readers did not enjoy the show. 
It only got 17.4% thumbs up and 82.6% thumbs down. You watched this show back for the first time in a long time this morning. What say you thumbs up, thumbs down or thumbs in the middle, I guess. I I'm, I'm a thumbs in the middle guy on this one. I, I didn't think there was, there was nothing really. I mean, there were moments in the show that were like, Oh, there were, there were grown moments. I got a groaner watching this show. <laughs> a groaner. I got a groaner watching this show. Um, several of them, actually, there were several groaner moments in this show, but nothing that was like horrible. Well, there was a couple horrible moments. What am I saying? Who am I kidding? I'm trying to be as positive as I can be, but, but it, it wasn't so bad that I went, Oh God, it was just okay. To me, honestly, my, my real takeaway when I walked away this morning, when I shut off my, um, iPad was this was a TV show. Yeah. This wasn't a pay-per-view. It was a decent TV show. It was a lackluster pay-per-view. It wasn't horrible. Just nothing happened. The only thing that made it feel like a pay-per-view was the RVD and sting package towards the end. That was really well done. And that kind of made it feel special. But other than that, it's just another TV show. Well, let's jump into it before we do though. I want to ask Scott Steiner's not at the show. Now, as a reminder, he's in the middle of an angle with Matt Morgan, but all of a sudden he takes a booking in Ontario. How does this happen? Scott Steiner, man. Just does what he wants. Dixie Carter. <laughs> yeah. He just, Scott's always pretty much done what he wanted. There was nothing new. I don't know that, you know, I feel so bad when we talk about TNA because I know people want the, you know, the inside and, and I try to give you my perspective about things I wasn't involved with, but I can't, I can't make shit up like everybody else does and pretend I was actually there and pretend I was involved or pretend I was witnessing something that I didn't witness. We'll leave that to Bubba the fucking love sponge, but I don't do that. And I bust people out that do do that. So I'm not going to participate and try to convince people that I know anything that I don't know. So I don't know. I have no idea. Let's get going. First match here. Hernandez is uh, going to be in tag team action against Shannon Moore and Jesse Neal. They go nine minutes and 36 seconds. Uh, Meltzer would say Neal was really over and the crowd was super into this for a few minutes, but the match wasn't very good. Uh, Rosita and Sarita are both at ringside providing distractions. Ultimately, he gave it a star and a half. Um, ultimately Hernandez, uh, kills Neil with the dominator and that's the pin. Do you think maybe we missed the boat with Jesse Neal in hindsight? No, I don't. I don't. I think Jesse was a good guy, good person. I liked him on a personal level. He was green as green could be. He was thrust into a position that technically he was ready for. He had the skill sets, but he didn't have the experience or the confidence. And it, it ended up showing. He wasn't bad. He wasn't horrible. He certainly wasn't horrible. He was pretty good, but he wasn't ready to be great. And he was put into a position too soon. And I just, no, I don't think we missed the boat out of them. I think we did it. We TNA did everything they could to try to launch him, but he wasn't ready to be launched. You have to have a little more seasoning 
You know, you have to, you just need the experience in order to, to really break through that kind of invisible next level. What makes the difference between somebody that really connects to the audience and somebody who's pretending to be a character and tries to connect to the audience? There is a difference. And you can't put it in a box or put it in a bottle or make it into a pill, you know, or read about it in a book. You just got to go out there and do it. And hopefully you have the talent and the instinct and the God-given ability to kind of see it in your head and understand what it is you need to do to connect to that audience. And Jesse just didn't have that opportunity because he, he was too new. He was too young. It's not a criticism at all. It's just, no, you can't put anybody out there fresh out of wrestling school. That's got six months of indie wrestling under their belt or whatever it is and throw them out there in a prime time, you know, position and expect realistically that you're going to get anything other than a work in progress. Conrad, did you know that my love for a good beer actually runs in the family? How do you know? You may ask. Well, several years ago, I signed up for Ancestry.com and found out that my great-great-grandfather immigrated from Germany to the United States as a beer meister. Ha! knew there was a good reason and there are many paths to finding your family's story whichever way you choose tracing your family generations back with a family tree or uncovering your ethnicity with an ancestry dna it's easy to get started with ancestry an ancestry dna test tells you where your ancestors are from ancestry's billions of records and millions of family trees let you discover their personal stories hell you could find a famous relative or perhaps a photo of your great grandma as a little girl Whatever you find, it's sure to change the whole way you look at your family history and yourself. After all, the story of your family is really the story of you. Researching your history is a fun activity for the whole family, and the stories you learn about your shared past can bring you closer together. Ancestry DNA can reveal ethnic origins and provide historical details that bring unique family stories to life. Ancestry DNA doesn't just tell you which countries you're from. Nuh-uh. It can also pinpoint specific regions within them, giving you insightful geographic detail about your history. Trace the paths of your recent ancestors and learn how and why your family moved from one place to another place all around the world. No other DNA test delivers such a unique interactive experience. It's really easy to start making discoveries with Ancestry. Grab an Ancestry DNA kit and start a free trial to amplify your discoveries with Ancestry's billions of records. Start exploring your family story today. Head to our URL at Ancestry.com forward slash 83 weeks to get your Ancestry DNA kit and start your free trial. That's Ancestry.com forward slash 83 weeks. Let's talk about the next segment. To your point, this does start to feel like a TV show because Jeff and Karen come out. Karen's on crutches with her left leg in a walking boot, but she's still all dressed up in a gown and has her right foot in a spiked heel. Uh, Jeff tries to explain that Karen broke her ankle in a fall at home, but nobody believes that the crowd starts chanting bullshit. And Jeff yells at the crowd that there are kids watching at home and they don't need to hear this filthy language. Of Not course. on a show called TNA, where his wife slut shamed a whole ring full of people a week before. Absolutely not. I love that. That's awesome. So they start chanting it louder, of course, uh, or in theory, but immediately they stopped. 
and they thought, well, that makes sense. Maybe we should. So this audience here at impact has, has a, uh, a heart, uh, Jeff announces the tag team matches off now under doctor's orders. Uh, Karen can't wrestle. So Mick Foley comes out and says he saw the x-rays himself and the ankle was fractured in two places, but he said the x-rays were of a six foot six African-American male. I've always wondered how Foley knew the guy was black based on anyway. Uh, so Karen needs to be, matched. Oh, that's going to see that comment right there. There's going to be all kinds of, that's just going to be all kinds of shit. How can you that. tell looking at an ankle, how tall and, and ethnicity the dude is though. That's silly. No, it is silly. It is silly. You can't tell I from ankle bones, how tall somebody is, is, or is it, you know what I'm saying? It's just maybe because it's so silly and so ironic that it'll get a pass. Oh no, it definitely gets a pass. I wasn't saying it in a negative tone. I'm just saying like, hang on now. How c- it would have been just as funny if he said it was a, the x-ray was of a German shepherd's foot. You know, it's like, okay, well now we can tell. All right. Well, that's a different species, but yeah, whatever. Six foot six black dude. Uh, it's actually, it's actually kind of funny. Oh, it, it is funny. Yeah. 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 Not trying to be controversial. Uh, so, uh, Karen needs to be magically. Okay. By match time. Uh, and Karen says, well, I have nothing to wear. And Foley says the seamstress is making her an outfit and teases. It's going to be something. And, uh, then Karen takes off her walking boot and throws it at Foley. Boy, Karen's stealing the show here. Is she not? Karen is the most underrated performer of the last 20 years. Not the most important. Didn't draw the most money, but I'm talking about raw, pure, unadulterated talent. She's phenomenal. She's got a way of becoming that character. You would think she's trained in the Stanislavski school of acting. I mean, she's amazing. She really is. And it's unfortunate that we didn't see more of her, but yeah, she did a phenomenal job. I love Karen Angle's work, Karen Jarrett's work, Karen Angle's work, whatever, whoever's work. She's a worker and she's good at it. Uh, next up, we get Brian Kendrick doing an interview talking about how the X division was a place for the most courageous people in the biz in the business, but the good old boys who run the promotion have turned the X division into filler material. He said, he's the one who's going to bring the X division back to prominence and Meltzer wishes him good luck with that. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's Brian Kendrick and Robbie E out next. They go six minutes and 40 seconds. Meltzer would say it wasn't good. And the people didn't care. You know, they're trying to do what they can with Robbie E. We both think a lot of the guy behind the performer. This is very much a Jersey Shore ripoff. Uh, Kendrick, a great in-ring performer who, for whatever reason, never probably got the, the breaks he needed. Uh, star in a quarter, though, something just didn't work. I don't know if the fans just weren't with it or if the, it's the way the division had been uh, presented or they weren't with Robbie E. What do you think? First of all, the X division meant absolutely nothing. You cannot find one person that can say, what is the X? If you ask the question, what is the, what was the X division and how is it different than anything else in TNA crickets? Oh, I wish I had my cricket button. Fuck. That would have been a perfect time to use the cricket button on my new roadie. Is it roadie or road? Oh yeah. You are a roadcaster roadcaster, man. If I had a cricket bucket, a cricket button, I would have used it right then. Nobody knew. It didn't mean anything. And and that's part of the issue with it. Uh, or that was part of the issue with it. Now let's talk about Kendrick. 
cool as fuck. Weird. And I say weird in a, in, in a loving way. He was very, very, let's use the word unique. He was unique, not weird, unique. And I dug him, but he was really unique all the time, which is probably why he never really found a way to fit in. Right. Because you talk about people, you know, say, oh, man, he marches the beat of his own drummer, you know, and that's kind of like a, a, a compliment in a way, yeah. you know, that reflects the, the, the perception of somebody's very independent minded, which is, a, I think, a great quality to have. And then you have people who are just really marching to the beat or their own drummer, not only their own drummer, but they got a full freaking orchestra going on in their head. That's Brian Kendrick. And I think it's cool as shit. It is cool. But he's, but he's definitely, he was weird and he was fun, is fun, was fun to watch in the ring. The reason I think this match didn't work is because Robbie was still pretty new and overplaying that gimmick. You know, I think it's okay to rip off a gimmick like that or to be a character, you know, much like, you know, when the honky tonk man was over, okay. For whatever period of time that was in that era, in that moment, that character worked. Yeah. Big but time. there's a time when you got to put that character up on the shelf, right? Cause it ain't working anymore. It's come, it's gone. Let it live somewhere in the minds of people's memory or in the memories of, of people don't keep beating it to death. And I think that's what happened with Robbie E here. Number one, he, he played, he overplayed that character. Had he dialed that, you know, Jersey shore character down a notch. So yeah, kind of reminded you of it and you, yeah, you know where it came from, but he overplayed it to the point where it was, it was just, here's the analogy. Conrad, you know how much I love good sushi. Yeah. A lot of good sushi. A lot. But if you cram it down my throat, I'll gag on it just like it would anything else. Hmm. And and Robbie E just shoved that character down our throats by overplaying it so much that it just became kind of, eh, I can't wait for this to be over with. It was no longer funny. It's too much. And I think the chemistry between those two and, and the lack thereof is the reason this match felt so off. Not because of, certainly not because of Brian Kendrick. I, you know, again, you know, the yoga thing and the hooded white robe. And okay. That's not my cup of tea. I don't care though. It was still entertaining, even though it's not my cup of tea. I understand why it was entertaining. That's my feeling on this match. I wasn't impressed, but I think it was more of a chemistry and inexperience issue. Next up, Mickey James pins Madison rain in six minutes and 50 seconds to retain the knockouts title. And uh, by the steps, Tara is now free from rain. Um, Meltzer would say, James got several near falls. Referee Mike Posey took the first bump. Uh, by the way, they say in the uh, notes here that Mike Posey was hired as Brian Hebner was out because he needed knee surgery. Anyway, Madison rain puts on her loaded glove, but before she could use it, Tara pulls the glove off, traded some near falls and James comes off the top of the Thess press, but rain moved and James wiped out Posey. Uh, Tara gets the glove on and, uh, rain tells Tara to hit James. She teases. She would. And just as she's about to, she stops and instead hit rain and James got the pin question mark. And of course I'm left to ask you what's with all this overbooking is it is, you know, I know sometimes the internet goes a little nuts with LOL swerve, bro. That feels like what this is. What say you? 
Yeah, it is. It was overbooked. It was overproduced. There was no real structure to it. The story, the backstory was kind of fundamentally flawed. You know, it's just, there was nothing about it other than talent in the ring that made it the least bit interesting from a story perspective. It was just stupid, dumb. Mickey James though. I mean, she's, uh, one of the more underrated wrestlers, uh, even on this roster, which is a loaded roster back then. What, what was it about her run in TNA that I don't think it ever really got the momentum it needed. Was there just not the right opponent or was it all just down to, you know, for lack of a better word, bad booking. You know, I'm not sure, you know, cause Mickey certainly did and still does have the ability. I mean, we've seen it for however many years in WWE on and off. And she's got a great look. She's a talented person. She's a nice person. Um, I know Dixie really dug her, you know, Dixie tried to help her with her music career. So it wasn't, you know, that Dixie wasn't into her, you know, or supportive of her uh, as a member of the roster. Dixie certainly was how that never manifested into something more important or a higher profile on the show. I, I think probably has to do with just the state of the, the woman's division and TNA, which ironically at the time was superior in my opinion to the women that you would see in WWE. You know, there was a point in time when the women in TNA were really physically involved and active and were putting on great matches where, you know, in WWE at the time, they were still, you know, kind of eye candy and, and walking around on their hands and knees with a dog collar on, <laughs> dog collar on. So, but I don't know. I don't think the roster was deep enough with talented women that could really keep up with Mickey. Right. I think a lot of, you know, Madison rain. And I think the world of her, by the way, this is not a criticism. It's just an observation folks. There's a difference between a criticism and an observation. Madison didn't have a lot of experience. Yeah. She was new. Mickey did. Yeah. So what happens when you put someone with a lot of experience in the ring with someone that doesn't have it, there becomes a pretty, noticeable difference between the two and someone like Mickey was probably has to dial her stuff down a little bit, has to adjust the way she works in order not to outwork or outperform the person she's in the ring with and accentuate the obvious, which is one person has a lot of experience and the other one doesn't. And I think there was probably a lot of that going on. Tara, you know, had a ton of experience. She could go. And there were a few others that could really go, but there are a lot of them that couldn't yet at this point in their careers. So I think that might've been it just lack of depth of really talented and experienced people, as opposed to a lack of commitment. I think the commitment was there. I just think there was a lack of depth when it came to the caliber of experience that Mickey had and Tara had. Uh, Madison, of course, is uh, retired now and uh, doing some commentary. Let's uh, let's talk about the next match. Oh, before I do, Mike Posey, you remember meeting Mike? And nothing stands out of my mind. I'm sure I did. Um, I think he's a good referee. Him and I think slapped he's him on the back, but I, I, nothing that stands out. You see him every now and again on AEW, and he's been around forever. I think I first saw him with Bill Barron's way back in the day, but I don't know. He feels like a a good referee to me, and uh, it's cool to see him. Yeah, on TV, even here 10 years ago. Next up, Kazarian and Max Buck. 
And of course, Max Buck, we know is uh, one half of the now young bucks, uh, Matt Jackson, as we know him now, uh, Kazarian's going to retain the X title here in 11 minutes and 20 seconds. Meltzer dug it and he gave it two stars, but he says the crowd was not into this match or either guy, but there was no buildup on television for it, but they're doing all kinds of crazy, uh, spots here and a really nasty spill for, uh, Matt Jackson who cracks his head on the floor and, uh, yeah, rough stuff here, but the fans are just not invested. So even though they're, they're both very capable performers and they're pulling off some tremendous feats of, uh, not just acrobatics, but athleticism, it's like the, the, the fans are almost conditioned to pay it. No mind. It's hard for me to reconcile that because these Shouldn't days, be. these days fans will be all over this. Well, that's because these days, by this time, people have gotten so used to not having any really compelling story that they're just okay with it. Right. And, and now they, maybe this is why the audience, one of the reasons, not the reason, but perhaps, perhaps notice how I say perhaps, because I'm not in the business anymore. I'm on the outside looking in just like everybody else. I don't see the research. I don't see the data, but perhaps the reason that people are not watching wrestling to the same extent as they did at one point is because at this point, stories are secondary and they become, and, and they're a distant second to presentation, presentation, athleticism above all else. That's kind of the, what we've got and cool. If it's working great, I'm not the, one of those guys. I'm not like Jim Cornette. We got to go back to the way it used to be. No motherfucker. Nothing goes back to the way it used to be. Nothing goes back to the way music will never go back to the way it used to be. Sitcoms will never go back to the way they used to be. Nothing will ever go back to the way it used to be, including professional wrestling. So I'm not that guy. I'm just saying it's kind of obvious to me, at least that because of, for various reasons, one of them being the sheer volume of content that people are producing nowadays and have to produce in order to, keep their budgets in check and keep those licensing deals coming in because now light television licensing has eclipsed live event uh, revenue or even pay-per-view revenue. So yeah, I get it. I'm not picking on anybody, but the, I think the, the, the end result is people have just gotten used to not having great stories, which is why a match like we just saw today would have get a different reaction than it would have back in 2011. And the reason that they weren't invested in this match, the same reason is the same reason that people aren't invested to the same degree. in some of the stuff we're seeing today, because back in 2011, there was no story in this match, which is why people weren't invested and why today we're not getting the kind of viewership in professional wrestling across the boards that we used to not because people watch it on their phone. That's a bogus excuse. Okay. Not bogus real, but not as important as people think the real important people are the real important reason why people aren't watching wrestling to the same extent today as they did at one time in history is because the stories don't matter. And therefore in Dave's words in 2011, people weren't invested. Well, guess what the fuck It's still true today. If you don't have a great story and they're not invested in it, regardless of how exciting the action may be, you're not going to solicit the engagement that you think you should. Wow. Fucking awesome. You're fired up today. I am on my game. <laughs> Take it from me. Easy. E.
Do you own or rent your home? Sure you do. And I bet it could be a lot of hard work. But you know what's easy? Bundling policies with GEICO. That's right. GEICO makes it easy to bundle your homeowner's or rental insurance along with your auto policy. And it's a good thing, too. You've already got so much to do around your home. Go to GEICO.com. Get a quote and see how much you could save. It's Geico easy. Visit geico.com today. That's geico.com. It is kind of interesting to go back and watch this match, you know, 10 years later, because you've got two top AEW stars in the middle of an impact pay-per-view with no TV buildup. The crowd doesn't care. And these days they'd be going nuts. Let's talk about the next match. Crimson and abyss. Crimson gets the win in 10 minutes and 41 seconds. Abyss pulls out Janice, which is the board with nails. And, uh, that gets a pop. Um, he misses a swing and Crimson spears him. And then abyss kicks out. They try a second spear. Abyss lands a front kick to the chest. He goes for the shock treatment. Crimson gets out and uses a double arm DDT, but nobody cares during all these false finishes. Eventually abyss uses the Vader reverse splash, but Crimson uh, Crimson kicks out and the crowd still doesn't care. But Crimson finally gets the win with that, uh, D Brown style, uh, sky high power bomb. And it gets one star, a lot of time invested in abyss here being associated with Hulk. And now he loses clean to Crimson. Was it stop and start for abyss here? Or was the company thinking in your opinion? Hey, maybe Crimson's our next breakout star. I know there was a lot of enthusiasm early on for Crimson. Uh, I didn't. I didn't feel. I didn't have a real vibe for him. I didn't feel him one way or the other. I was kind of like waiting, seeing, you know, before I started forming an opinion. And I didn't really see enough of him to ever really form one. Um, you know, with with Abyss, yeah, there is not a nicer person that I've ever worked with as far as just being a nice person and very intelligent, by the way, you know, he, abyss reminds me of ironically of Kane in a way. Um, and, and I think it's unfortunate that abyss tried to use that mankind, you know, undertaker kind of, but not undertaker, but the mankind kind of character derivative, we'll call it a derivative. Cause I don't think it served him well to kind of copy something else that was over at one point kind of hard to live up to that expectation. <clears throat> um, but I, I, I just never got behind the abyss character. I know Chris Park loved it. He really felt that character. Um, I couldn't, I just couldn't get behind it. The whole Janice thing to me was eh. too inside. It's, it's just, eh. couldn't dig it. Let's talk about the next match here. It's a uh, beer money retaining their tag titles over Matt Hardy and Chris Harris. Uh, Harris comes out with the America's most wanted, uh, trench coat and trunks, and he gets no reaction from these folks who clearly don't remember him. Uh, the first time Harris was with storm Harris tagged out before they locked up, but the idea was, uh, good. I guess if you know the history of these two. But the live crowd clearly just does not remember Chris Harris. Maybe they weren't watching TNA back then or whatever. Well, how many, and think about that kind of, how many people were actually watching TNA back when Chris Harris and James storm were together. I'm asking that 
I mean, I really, I don't know. It was a weekly pay-per-view model. So to your point, so maybe 12 people. Oh, wow. Listen to you. No, seriously. That was a failed model. And it just wasn't what it was. It was a failed. There weren't hundreds of thousands of people watching that pay-per-view. If there was, we'd, they'd still be doing them. There wasn't, nobody was watching it. So nobody cared here again. Vince Russo book a match with a guy that nobody knows based on an angle that nobody knows existed. Don't give it any update. Don't bring the, for, the, the story forward in any reasonable way. So even those people that never heard of this cat could go, oh, well, evidently there was a relationship some time ago that I didn't know anything about. So, okay, I'll invest a little bit of my time in this anyway, or emotion, God forbid. But no, you're just assuming that because they were a tag team before, this now national audience is going to know what you know. The hell? I need more coffee. No, man, I better not. I can feel my blood pressure rising. I can actually feel the pulse in my neck. I can feel it. Check this out. They set up the DWI, which is their finish for beer money, but Storm says no. And instead has Bobby Roode pick Harris up uh, for him to come off the top rope with a leg drop, which is the old America's most wanted finisher on Harris. Meltzer would say a lot of stuff here made sense in the layout, but it didn't work because the crowd didn't care and didn't know the significance of Harris versus storm and all the spots associated with it. Star and a quarter. The story's great here, but it feels like, well, I guess two questions was Harris just not TV ready, or did we not do a good job using our television time to lay the backstory? Cause you have a great story if you were watching the whole time, but if you weren't I mean, couldn't they just fix this with a bunch of packages? Yes. But a couple of things, there was no story in this. It was the story didn't exist in anybody's mind, but the person who booked it that, or the people that were involved, maybe in James Storm's mind or Rude's mind, maybe that or James Storm's mind in this case, maybe it made sense because, you know, after all they did this stuff together. I get that. Fortunately, nobody knew about it or cared. We've already covered that. There was no story going into this. And by the way, um, let me let me answer one of your questions before I get myself confused again. Harris wasn't ready. His timing was horrible. He was out of shape. He, he just, his execution, his offense uh, was just because of timing. He had looked like he hadn't worked in a long time. And he knew it and he was, he was overcompensating for it. And in the process of overcompensating, he looked really weak. My opinion, I'm not a wrestler, so I'm just like everybody else. I only call it as I see it. Um, the finish, though, whatever that was called, what was it called again, that finish? The death sentence. That was the dumbest finish I've ever laid eyes on. Go back and watch this finish and ask yourself, how can anybody believe anything after seeing that piss poor finish? <laughs> So okay. Bobby Roode picks the guy up. Harris, in this case, picks him up. Harris has to, in the corner, while he's watching James Storm ascending to the top turnbuckle, which is another thing I fucking hate most of the time. And in the meantime, Harris is holding himself up in a perfect position to take that bump or take that finish for, I don't know, eight seconds, oh. 10 seconds. Wouldn't you fight your way out of that? 
Yeah, probably. Wouldn't it? You shouldn't it make it look like you're trying to force your opponent into that position instead of him going here. Let me help you out by holding myself up. Okay, three, two, one, go. God damn. Do people not watch their own shit back? Does somebody not go, hey, hey, Jay, let's let's get, you know, when we're done, let's go drink a couple of beers. Let's go back and watch that match on tape and see what worked and didn't work. And don't, can't you look at that and go, well, that makes no fucking sense. Now, there's a lot of things that happen in wrestling that don't make sense. That's okay. It's entertainment. You know, you see a great car chase in a Tom Cruise movie. You know what? That ain't real either. And that could never happen either. But if it's interesting enough and entertaining enough and it appeals to your emotion and your senses enough, you'll allow yourself to forget that it isn't real. In this case, that finish was so stupid and was such a just a buzzkill of a finish in terms of enjoying the product or trying to believe in what you're seeing. It was like, oh, my God. Imagine David Copperfield out there doing a magic show in Las Vegas or wherever he's doing it. And he's in the middle of one trick. And all of a sudden the pigeon starts flopping around in his pocket. He was trying to hide it. All of a sudden, now everybody knows there's a pigeon in his pocket. So when he pulls the pigeon out later on as part of a joke or part of a trick, people are going, dude, we knew the pigeon was in your fucking pocket. We've been, we've been watching it flop around in your jacket here for the last 20, 24 minutes. And now you're going to pull a pigeon out of your pocket and make it look like it's a magic trick. Jesus Christ. I want my money back. Same thing here. (laughs) Can I just, uh, can we name this version of you? You know, for Jim Ross, I call it red ass Jr. This can't be red ass Eric. We got to come up with another one. I'm just being, I'm just sharing how my, how I think about the product and, and I don't know. James, I don't mean to sound upset. I'm not upset. James Storm's going to drive to your house. Well, I guess he probably won't. That's a long way, but either way, let's Come get on over James. There's beer in the fridge. <laughs> I got a Porter Rose brisket in the freezer. I got a rec tech grill brother. We'll talk about this finish and have a beer and a brisket in the process. Come on down. Next up, Tommy Dreamer pins AJ Styles. What? In a no DQ match in 13 minutes and two seconds. Meltzer would say the crowd saw Styles as a star, but it was another match they didn't seem to care about. Styles set up the Styles clash when Bully Ray came in and hit Styles with a chain. Christopher Daniels ran in and chased Bully away. Dreamer then used a pile driver on the table that was still lying on the mat. The pile driver looked awful and that the sense that there's so much protection that it was far too visually implausible, almost looking like a missed move that you would call it a finish a star and a half. Something about Tommy dreamer just wasn't clicking with this audience here in 2011. Of course, you know, 10 years prior, he was over like Rover in WWE and in ECW, but here, I don't know, man, it feels like they wanted AJ to be on the A side of this match. Um, What'd you think? I didn't get it. It was a mess. I felt the same way you do. I mean, I just went, eh, Tommy dreamer, AJ dreamer goes over. Where's this going? And it wasn't even with heat. Really? It was just, eh, and it felt sloppy. It was just, eh, garbage match. That's what I, it was a garbage match with AJ styles, a garbage match. Yeah. When I say garbage, that's the same thing as gimmick. Yeah. Yeah. Bad, bad taste in my mouth. 
Saving money at SaveWithConrad.com is fast and easy. Just ask Jordan in Murfreesboro. He says, Jimmy made the entire process easy. No appraisal was needed, and we got a great rate on our refinance. What about Glenn up in Sperry, Oklahoma? He says, I wound up knocking four years off my loan and even saved a few dollars on my monthly payment. Easy to work with. Jimmy is the man. How much are you overpaying right now? Keep more of your own money at SaveWithConrad.com. NMLS number 65084, equal housing lender. So wait, lower your monthly payments and pay your house off faster. Oh, and did I mention no house payments for two months? At SaveWithConrad.com. Next up, Kurt Angle and China beat Jeff <laughs> and Karen Jarrett. Uh, 10 minutes and 14 seconds. Meltzer would say the whole match was a tease of China versus Karen. This was booked perfectly in the sense that Kurt and Jeff carried and worked the whole match and just built to the China spot at the finish. Kurt and Jeff have great working chemistry far above everyone else on the show. They tried to position China as the star of the match. Jeff kicked Kurt low as the referee, Mike Posey was distracted. China then tagged in slammed Jeff and nearly killed herself in the process. Then she suplexed Jeff, which didn't look smooth, but better than the slam. China clothesline Karen in the corner and the crowd went nuts for that. She did a pedigree on Karen and put the ankle lock on Karen. She tried to stop Karen from tapping by grabbing her hand, but Kurt put Jeff in the ankle lock and Karen tapped three quarter or three stars. So let's recap. So we got a lot of matches so far on this show. Uh, match number one got a star and a half and that was, uh, the ink ink match match. Number two got a star and a quarter. It's the Brian Kendrick match. Match number three gets a star. That's Mickey James. Kazarian and Max Buck, AKA Matt Jackson, get two stars. Crimson and Abyss get one star. The beer money Chris Harris thing gets a star and a quarter. Tommy Dreamer and AJ get a star and a half. China gets three stars. And, uh, you know, there's so much context to this. It's heavy on story. Everyone remembers, you know, the whole storyline with with Kurt and Jeff, and of course, Karen being for lack of a better word, the monkey in the middle. Uh, and so that's the big story, right? But they also remember that China used to have her own history with Jeff Jarrett. They had the match where she became intercontinental champion the first time. And of course, Jeff quote unquote, held up Vince McMahon and left the WWF in very controversial terms. But oh, by the way, we remember that China was also with Hunter and now that relationship came to an end. Now Hunter's with Stephanie. China's out of the company. She uses a pedigree. There's layer after layer after layer here. And the fans were hot for it. So even if you thought maybe China coming in was not the best play, fans saw her as a star here and they knew exactly how to use her, even if the execution wasn't perfect. What say you? I think saying the execution wasn't perfect is being very kind. I'm trying she to be helpful a body slam. She's dead. The first thing you do, you've been on the, oh, she's not around to defend herself. So I'm going to let this one go. Thank God it had a good story. Great story. And you got two great workers, you know, Jeff Jarrett, Kurt angle, as Dave said, they got great chemistry. Um, overall though, have we said all that needs to be said about China? I have. Okay. Let's keep going. Her soul. She was, she, she, you know, I didn't know her. I talked to her a couple of times on the phone. You know, there was a period in time when we had maybe two or three conversations. So I don't, I didn't know her at all. 
she seemed like a really nice person, but had issues. So I think that's all we need to say. God rest her soul. Let's, uh, let's talk about the next and final match. Our main event. We're finally here. Sting is going to pin Rob Van Dam to retain the TNA title in 12 minutes and 48 seconds. Uh, Mr. Anderson comes out as the guest announcer. They, uh, seem to telegraph his interfering at the finish, but he didn't do so. Uh, RVD went to the top, but misses the frog splash. Sting goes for the roll up and then follows with a scorpion death drop. Unfortunately, RVD took the bump before sting did the move being the pro he was sting wouldn't pin RVD after a botch, but instead he was working back to the finish. Sting immediately did the move showing the first one was a botch and got the pin. The nature of the botch and going right back meant the finish was flat and the show ended with Anderson going to the ring and getting in Sting's face. And the announcers noting that Sting and Anderson would headline slam anniversary two and three quarter stars. Uh, do you think the criticism of the finish is fair or is that Meltzer, uh, just sort of going off here? Well, Dave, like everybody else has an opinion, certainly can express it. Um, can't criticize somebody else's opinion. I may have felt differently and the audience may have felt differently. This is what it is. I kind of like the match. No, I didn't kind of like it. I liked it because I liked the build. I love the package going into it. The package really established. Here's what I like the best. Let me, I'm going to Rob Van Dam in the right situation can be one of the better promos in this situation. He's better in a package like this in a one-on-one where you're, you know, interviewing some, not, not necessarily in the ring in the heat of the moment, but in a, in a, in a setting like we saw in this package leading in Rob can, he's very believable. I love the way the package was shot. What I like the best about Rob's perspective during this buildup is that it, he respected staying. This is, this is a classic example of how to get yourself over by putting your opponent over. You know, I, I liked it. I liked the story. It felt believable to me. I liked Sting working out in the gym and acknowledging when he said, you know, there's, I'm not capable of doing some of the things I used to do, but I still got a trick or two up my sleeve. Right. Believable. Believable. Now you're looking at Rob Van Dam, who physically, in terms of age and everything else, you would say, yep, he's got the advantage, but the Sting... He's that guy that sees it. He, he may be getting a little older, but he's still got that, you know, he can still, he can still got that fast draw when he needs it. That's a believable story. And therefore the match becomes more entertaining as a result of it. Not just because of the technical aspect of the match, but because of the match and the way it was set up in the story. So I, I, I really liked it a lot. I love the, the thoughtful, listen to this. Listen to what I'm about to tell you. This sounds so fucking hokey. It sounds like I'm talking about, you know, designing Mother's Day cards. But the thoughtfulness and the detail that went into the package made the match more interesting than the match really was. And which is why I liked it as much as I did. Because that's, to me, what makes great wrestling is the, the subtle psychology of it, the subtle psychology of Rob Van Dam, who's a babyface, getting into a match with a guy who's another babyface and putting his opponent over. And it was a kind of a, a youth versus elder statesman kind of a backstory. 
which I really love because everybody can identify with that in sports, in life, everybody identifies with that. So I, I, I think, I think the buildup in the match itself was really, really good. And I really respected the people that put it together, whoever it was, wasn't me, whoever it was deserves a tip of the hat. Got a bunch of questions about this one. Spanks wants to know how much of an involvement behind the scenes uh, were you involved with around this time? And how involved was Mrs. B ever during any of your adventures in wrestling? So let's skip the first part. We've broken that down, but Mrs. B did she ever participate in anything? This becomes a question because we just saw her on that dreadful macho man, um, a and E biography, which I'm still ashamed you participated in, but still she was on it. Uh, we haven't seen her in a lot of other stuff. Was she involved in anything else in wrestling? No, not at all. And, and by the way, I was, I'm embarrassed that I was a part of that as well. <clears throat> so people understand and know both Mrs. B and I shot those segments while I was still working for WWE and both of us still living in Stanford a year and a half ago. Had I had, and I thought, because I've been involved in so many WWE projects and I hope to continue to be involved and I'm maybe, or maybe not. Cause I'm pretty vocal about my opinion. Sometimes um, <clears throat> I like to think my, cons- my criticism is constructive. I don't try to pick on individuals or get petty or personal with it, but had I known what this biography was going to be, neither my wife or I would have participated. Had I known that they were going to put Bubba the fucking love sponge in this thing, um, I would have said, thank you, but no, thank you. Well, so I'm, I'm well, embarrassed too, by the way, brother. So I know I'm just busting balls. Cause we both think oh, it's, it's okay. It's, it's I'm, I don't feel like you're busting my balls at all. You're pointing something. It's an observation, not a criticism. And I, I agree with you on it. Now, no, Mrs. B wasn't involved in anything. You know, she would, I would come home sometimes and go, you know, I got this issue or, or this opportunity or versus this opportunity. And we'd talk through things, her and I, sometimes she would just kind of help me steer myself through the own, my own conversation in my own head. Um, can I, can I tell you one of my favorite things that happened with me and you in wrestling? One of the times you and Laurie were in for a visit, uh, I said to you, Hey, did you see so-and-so? I don't want to say what it was. And you said, no. And so I put it on TV. And so you're on the couch, I'm in the recliner and our, our wives are chatting. And so when I play the clip, everyone watches it and you and I already know what we think and we don't have to communicate it out loud. We just sort of look at each other and Mrs. B sees what happens on TV and then looks back at you and says, why are they doing that? And we both just started laughing. And then Megan says, yeah, that's pretty stupid. And it's just funny to me that our wives who aren't really big wrestling fans, but they've been around it for so long now that even they are like, okay, that didn't make any sense. And it was funny that it's something you and I would talk about on the show here, but the ladies were both like, why are they doing that? And I don't know. It just got all over me. Cause I couldn't help, but think, I wonder how many times she's had to sit through this shit over the last th- 30 years and think the same thing. Wait a minute. Why are they doing that? And that perspective, cause sometimes you and I are so far, what's the thing? We can't see the forest for the trees. We're just yep. so deep in the weeds that it's, we're like, oh yeah, now that makes sense. But our wives are sort of on the outside, like, Hey, wait a minute. I don't know about that. I like that. Yeah. I, you know, I think it's just like my son, Garrett, no, certainly my wife and my son, Garrett, look, even my daughter, Montana, who is a director of development at, at one of the larger television companies in the world right now. 
you know, she, they've all learned, they've all vicariously picked up, you know, not vicariously, I, I should say, by proximity, you know, hearing me talk, listening to me on the phone, you know, down, Diamond Dallas Page, you know, coming over to my house on a Saturday afternoon and he and I sitting out on our deck for hours and hours and hours, you know, talking about wrestling and ideas, you know, you end up, you know, hearing it and, and be, becoming exposed to the, to the, at least the thought process in some cases of the business. So that, yeah, I'm sure that Megan, your wife, you know, Ric Flair's daughter, you know, yeah, I'm sure she's picked up a lot of wrestling conversation, whether she wanted to or not. And then she married you and she's got no choice. She's still listening to wrestling conversations. Yeah. She, uh, I'm sure at some point every now and again, she goes through her day and, and, and thinks about all those stupid wrestling shit that exists in her life. And she thinks what a rib I've been trying to get away from this my whole life. <laughs> and, and, and now her husband is doing 27 hours a week worth of wrestling podcasts while, oh yeah. Hosting that show on vice. Well, and, and, oh yeah. Running that mortgage company where, uh, yeah, she's probably wondering how did I, this is some kind of karma. Well, and it's random because I'll be like, uh, Hey, just giving you a heads up. Uh, Eric Bischoff's going to be with us Tuesday and Wednesday night. He's going back home Thursday. And then like two <laughs> weeks later, Hey, by the way, Jeff Jarrett's going to come spend the night next Wednesday. She's got to be thinking like, wait a minute, what the fuck has happened? I thought this was a, anyway, uh, Josh Todd wants to know, do you ever forget the question when asked what Eric, when Eric Bischoff goes into his passionate responses? No, I do not. I think that's why everyone tunes in is Eric Bischoff's passionate responses. Uh, Charlie wants to know Bruce had mentioned that there were some issues with China's contract negotiations, Mr. Bischoff, from your standpoint, what was her value to the company and her value financially, meaning, uh, what was the company willing to pay her for what she brought in? I know you didn't necessarily negotiate the financial interest or aspect, but based on the reaction from the crowd, even if you had your doubts, when you saw her backstage, did you think, Hey, maybe it could work? Nope. Okay. No, and I, I have no idea what her deal was. <clears throat> I, I, it's not that I forgot. I just never knew. That's a Bruce question. Um, but I, I, I wasn't supportive of bringing her in, and nothing I saw in the ring <clears throat> changed my mind. Yeah, you can get a you can get a reaction on a pay per view. Yes, you've got the the history of China and WWE and her history with Jeff Jarrett and. There were a lot of things that, yes, on paper made sense, and I could see why it got the reaction it did for one night. I don't, I didn't see it as a long-term opportunity at all. Last one, then we'll wrap this week up. But stay tuned; we got a lot to talk about. Uh, Michael McClanahan says, around this time, TNA started promoting their baseball events. Uh, did Eric ever attend any of these events, and what did he think of the concept? So let me, I guess, explain. The company started to run some events in minor league baseball stadiums and, uh, it, it was a cool look and cool atmosphere. It was different. Uh, but I can imagine that you probably didn't like it. No, I didn't like it or dislike it. I, I understood why the, the theory behind it made a lot of sense to me. You know, minor league baseball is kind of a cool, and I don't know a lot about it, so I'm not trying to sound like I do. I had a friend at one point, a guy by the name of Peter Goober, who I've talked to talked about on this show in the past, um, that owned several minor league baseball teams, and they were all profitable. When a lot of other sports, in baseball, particularly baseball, wasn't in some respects, 
had a hard time being profitable. Um, minor league baseball was really successful and it was because it was family entertainment. The ticket prices were low. It had that real hometown feel to it. You know, you could sit out in the, you know, outside the, the actual stadium and, you know, cook your own hot dogs and watch the game. It just has a different feel to it in some markets. I, again, I'm not an expert, but in the minor league environments that I've been in minor league baseball environments I've been in, I can see why it would work. And in minor leagues, again, my experience has been limited experience has been a lot of these minor league teams are looking for things to promote locally so that the community is a part of, it's not just a baseball game. It's part of something bigger in the community on a Saturday afternoon. And um, it can be a lot of fun, but it can be a lot of, of a challenge too. And, you know, I know Brian Nobbs had some real success running independent shows um, in uh, minor league baseball stadiums. So I get it. And, but I never went to one <laughs> one of the TNA ones. I, I, I never experienced it firsthand. So I don't know what they look like and how they, how they pulled off, but um, oh, I was supportive of the idea. All right, let's it's jump a little in. bit like going to a state fair, you know, yeah. when you get hired and booked to bring a wrestling event into a state fair, people are coming for a variety of different reasons. And other happens to be wrestling on, right? That's kind of the challenge with doing uh, minor league games. All right, boys and girls stay tuned because now the fun starts. We're going to start to talk about what we're doing through the rest of the year. And we have got a lot of fun happening and it happens this month, may next week. We're going to do ask Eric anything part two. Now I know we just did one two weeks ago, but there were so many questions, maybe more than any, ask anybody, anything ever. Uh, we're going to do more. Uh, Eric gives great answers. He gives long answers. He gives detailed answers. So there's more meat on the bone. I wasn't done last week. So we're going to circle back, but in two weeks, we're going to come back and do something kind of fun. We're going to watch the Monday night raw from May 27th, 1996. Now I know what you're thinking. That seems kind of random. Well, it's right around the 25th anniversary of that show. And when we finish that raw, we're immediately going to watch nitro from the same night. Now don't tap out on me. These are both one hour shows at this point. Neither show has expanded. Uh, this is the first time that nitro goes to two hours and it's also when Scott hall shows up. So combined, you're going to be about two hours of content watching both shows with us, but I want to allow, cause that's as we've learned here on 83 weeks, context is King. I want to allow the context of what's really happening in professional wrestling. The very first time we see Scott hall on WCW, of course, we know everything is about to change. But we're going to take a look at the more cartoonish approach of the WWF. Of course, Shawn Michaels is their new champion. And then we're going to take a look at WCW before things got nutty. Uh, and then we're going to keep that theme going through the rest of the year. In the month of June, we're going to do the same thing for Kevin Nash's debut, which will be the June 10th, 1996 episode. We're also going to veer from our format just a little bit, and we're going to have some special guests here and there, but I'm really excited when we do another raw and uh, nitro watch along where we cover the outsiders taking over the show and the night after Hulk Hogan turned heel. And of course, we're going to talk about the entire show bash at the beach, 1996, when it all changed forever, we're really getting to the heart of where the 83 week run began. Eric, this is going to be fun, man. I'm pumped about what's to come here on 83 weeks. I am too. And by the way, May 27th, 1996, that was my birthday. Boom. Well, one of them. 
I've had 65 of them, soon to be 66, but <laughs> that was my birthday. So it was really cool. So yeah, I can't wait. And to watch both shows and really, boy, you talk about putting things in context. What a great way to do that. What a great way to do that. That's going to be fun. That's going to be a lot of fun. Well, I'm excited about it. And I'm excited for your birthday. Uh, this morning I've actually ordered your birthday present. I hope it makes it in time because, uh, I know you're excited when the UPS truck comes to see you. So it's coming one oh, more time. It. And Hey, if you want the UPS truck to come see you go to box I don't know if you've taken a look in a while, but we've got something for everybody. We've got Jeff Jarrett stuff and Kurt angle stuff and something to wrestle stuff and Jr stuff and all that. But when I say stuff, I don't just mean t-shirts and polos, but I mean, hats and hoodies and koozies and, uh, I mean, Yeti cups, whatever you're looking for. We've probably got it at box of gimmicks. Thigh pillows. Yeah. yeah. Easy E thigh pillow. Does Lauren have Lauren one of those? It. Yeah. <laughs> Look at us. We're stepping on each other to make Lauren jokes, boys and girls. That's it for us this week. We'll be back next week doing an ask Eric, anything. If you've got a question, we haven't clicked record yet. Go follow us at 83 weeks. I also want to thank everybody for leaving, leaving us a five-star review. If you haven't already, please do that. Apparently uh, it's something that we need more of, uh, in our community. I, I haven't really talked much about reviews, but apparently we need some more. So if you don't mind, hook us up. We'd like to have some five-star reviews over on 83 weeks, uh, until next week, he is at E Bischoff. I am at, Hey, Hey, it's Conrad. And we'll be back next week. But if you don't want to wait the whole week, tune in this Wednesday night, 9 PM Eastern for the heat.com. You don't just have to listen. You can call in and talk to Eric live on the air at ForTheHeat.com this Wednesday at nine Eastern. We'll see you next week right here on 83 weeks with Eric Bischoff. Hey Conrad, you and I love talking about Steven Singer, man. He's a buddy, but you know what? The competition really, I mean, really hates him. Steven makes the experience of buying a diamond better and better. And he makes it fun. Steven is the very first to offer each and every guest the perfect price. That's right. Have you ever wondered if you're really getting the best price? Are you like me and a little bit uncomfortable negotiating? Well, head to Steven Singer Jewelers and you are guaranteed to get the perfect price. You'll never pay more than the person next to you. Here's a little insider tip, fans. Most jewelers mark their merchandise way up just to mark it down to make you feel like you're getting a good deal. The person next to you may be paying less. What the hell? Do you want an important purchase like diamond jewelry to be based on your negotiating skills? Not the case at Steven Singer. Because at Steven Singer Jewelers, you are guaranteed to get the perfect price all day, every day, 365 days a year. That's why Conrad and I trust Steven Singer. He makes the experience of buying a diamond so easy. Check out Steven Singer Jewelers at the other corner of 8th and Walnut in Philly or online at IHateStevenSinger.com. Steven Singer Jewelers. One place, one price. That's IHateStevenSinger.com. John brings his skewed sense of humor. Jeff brings tips to cut strokes off your next round. Together, 
It's those weekend golf guys. They'll pay a lot of money to PXG and Titleist and Callaway and on and on and on. Right? How many yards do you think you're going to pick up with that extra? I think I can get an extra five to ten. What if I give you fifteen to twenty? <laughs> you pay me more. Jeff Smith right? teaches on the sliding scale. <laughs> those weekend golf guys, the podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B L E A V on YouTube or wherever you listen.